1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There will be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Just as delivery and Uber have become an integral part of many people's lives in the West, the gig economy has taken off in China too, where two-thirds of the population live in cities. There, the gig economy offers services beyond just cheap rides and fast takeaways, and symbolise a vibrant market economy with cosmopolitan consumers. But this comes at a human cost. China is not known for its mature workers' rights, and with the industry driven by private sector tech firms like Alibaba, in many ways gig economy workers are the new sweatshop workers of the country. Meanwhile, unionisation is difficult when central government treats any non-state-directed effort as suspicious. The pandemic has highlighted more than ever the plight and opportunities of gig economy workers, as China's lockdown populations rely on deliveries for, in some cases as in Shanghai, their very survival. Joining me to discuss all this is Viola Rothschild, a PhD candidate at Duke University, whose research has focused on the gig economy in China, which is still an understudied phenomenon by journalists and academics. I've actually known Viola for years, We did our Master's in Contemporary Chinese Studies together. Viola, it's so nice to have you on Chinese Whispers, welcome. First of all, I wondered if you can start by just giving an overview of the gig economy in China. Who are the major companies and what services do they provide?
0: Sure. Um, First, Cindy, uh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm a big China Whispers fan, so I'm really excited to, to be here. That's a great jumping off point. So the gig economy has grown really rapidly in China, probably in the last seven or eight years particularly, as a response to these top level initiatives that are pushing this fundamental shift from a low-tech manufacturing-based economy to a high-tech service-based economy. And that's led to a really hands-off regulatory approach through much of the 2010s that's allowed the tech companies that power the platform-based economy to experience uh, really explosive growth. And I'll slip in a disclaimer here that definitions of what the gig economy is and isn't vary quite a bit. So at its most basic, uh, the gig economy usually refers to flexible or temporary employment where workers enter into these agreements with on demand companies to provide services usually through some sort of app or online platforms. But a lot of companies and a lot of jobs could fall under this umbrella. So food delivery and rideshare drivers might be what come to mind first, but also rental property hosts, pet sitters, people who hand out coupons for bubble tea at the mall, freelance graphic designers, even live streamers. So this nebulous definition of what the gig economy is makes it pretty difficult to quantify and get exact statistics on its size and how much growth is generated. But just to give a a rough idea, a recent report by the Ministry of Human Resources estimates that flexible employment, which is a broad categorization, accounts for around 200 million workers, which is almost a quarter of China's entire labor force. But today, I'll mostly focus on these on-demand delivery services, so food, grocery, and package delivery, and also ride-sharing platforms. And estimates that focus on this subset of the gig economy have tallied usually around 80 million workers. So it's a huge range. Uh, It's very inexact act. <laughs> In terms of the landscape, uh, big names dominate the e-commerce, food delivery, and ride-hailing markets. Um, and many of these companies have become pretty recognizable outside China and people that pay attention to China. Uh, so Didi Chuxing has around 90% of the ride-share market. Uh, they powered out Uber in 2015, 2016. The food delivery market, which is massive, uh, is characterized by the meituan OlaMa duopoly, uh, where Meituan is backed by Tencent and Ulama is owned by by Alibaba, which are the two largest tech companies in China. And e-commerce, which accounts for millions of package delivery and courier jobs, is dominated by Alibaba's uh, Tmall and Taobao, Jingdong or JD.com, and Pinduoduo, which is a slightly smaller company that has a focus on agriculture and food products. And all of these e-commerce companies have recently branched out into grocery delivery as well. And so in recent years, uh, demand for gig work has consistently outpaced demand for full-time work. And There was another huge bump when the pandemic hit, uh, and it's only expected to grow more. So Alibaba's research arm uh, recently put out this study that found that China's gig economy might double again. So it could include more than 400 million workers by 2036. So, and, and this is similar to many other countries, I think, uh, China's gig economy is characterized by this rapid expansion, these tech companies um, and being an engine for larger economic growth and restructuring, um, but also by the accompanying challenges of figuring out government regulation and, and worker protections in some
1: sustainable way. Mm. One thing that I have been interested and in, quite amused by is when I went back to China, either the last time or the penultimate time, I saw that people who had been drinking out at dinner, right. they could get a gig economy driver to come be their designated driver and drive their own car back <laughs> where they then become the passenger because they've been drinking. Is that a, I mean, is that a service you've got in the States? Because in the UK, certainly that's not a part of the landscape at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's not something that I'm familiar with um, being offered <laughs> here. But, you know, Uber is expanding. It's, you know, maybe something that they'll, they'll throw out one of these days. But yeah, there, there definitely is a different range of services offered, um, some of which are pretty unique to the Chinese context. Um, so, right, you mentioned uh, in response to the frequent mixing of, of business and drinking, you can have, you know, a, a designated driver come pick you up after a work event where you've had a couple too many Baijiu shots. Another, <laughs> another one that I always think is funny um, is that single people can, can rent a boyfriend or a girlfriend to, to hang out with or even <laughs> take home over the holidays as a way to, to placate anxious parents through apps like uh, Zuo or or Rentme.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also buying groceries, although we are seeing more of that in the UK, certainly now as well. So let's talk about the pandemic then, because you've written about the experience of gig workers in the pandemic. It must be a pretty tough, but also interesting time to be a gig worker there because of its zero COVID policy, which locks up so many of your customers Mm -hmm. whilst you're still able to be on the roads, but also obviously the health concerns of going around all over, meeting different strangers. So can you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like for for workers?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the pandemic really brought the plight of these workers into the mainstream consciousness for the first time. When cities were locked down and people didn't or couldn't go out and businesses were closing, delivery orders skyrocketed. And gig workers were just so essential in making sure people got their food, groceries, medicine, household items, everything all at great risk to their own well-being and not just risk of illness workers had to follow stringent health and safety protocols that were put in place by their platform that took extra time public transportation systems shut down um, so if they lived in the suburbs they'd have to commute into the city, um, which would also take a longer time. Most, like you said, you know, most customers live in these gated apartment complexes, uh, many of which changed their entry and exit policies during the pandemic, which forced platforms and then in turn drivers to adapt to contactless delivery um, or systems where orders were pooled uh, sort of on the fly. So there were all these extra hurdles that these delivery drivers were having to sort of overcome in addition to just their usual tough, tough conditions. And so while I think that these hardships that the workers face were sort of known abstractly and, and certainly to people that care about labor issues, I think it really took the pandemic to galvanize public opinion and cast a spotlight on the work that they do and bring pressure to bear on the government to change some of the policies and regulations that don't afford the workers the same protections as workers with formal employment contracts. So, you know, a Meituan driver was on the cover of Time magazine in March 2020. In China, articles about the the heroics of delivery drivers went went viral on social media. And you had people from, you know, all parts of society speaking out in in support of these these drivers. So I think that the pandemic really was a, a watershed moment for delivery drivers
1: yeah that's so interesting because i think from our perspective as consumers whether in china or in the west it's easy to forget what kind of conditions people are working in so can we talk a little bit about the usual conditions as well then because apart from the pandemic as you say it was already quite tough First of all, I wonder who are the drivers and, and, and the workers who sign up? Are they students? Are they migrant workers? Or are they balancing multiple jobs? What are the kind of people who uh, we might expect to see?
0: Yeah, so I think it totally depends on the job. Um, these are generalizations, of course, but I think most full time delivery drivers are migrants. In many cities, uh, that's also the case with rideshare drivers, though some cities are now requiring rideshare drivers to have local residency permits. And that's something that came uh, sort of in the wake of a bunch of different uh, safety incidents a few years ago and there are definitely some college students and even retirees uh, that are doing deliveries as well but they're uh, mostly doing it you know part-time a delivery here or there for for supplemental income.
1: Yeah, and when we're talking about migrants as well, I think it's important to clarify, we're talking about internal migrants within China, people from from rural China into the cities. And when you talk about local residents as well, because of China's hukou system, household registration, which means that out-of-towners essentially have different access to different public health and other public services. Exactly. And those safety concerns were because presumably out-of-towners had a few... You know fatal incidents is it fair to say with with ride sharing where women were abducted and essentially killed, and there were safety concerns over that exactly, yeah, yeah, the reason I ask about who these people are is because you know if they're migrant workers coming from rural China, presumably they are not as educated as your kind of university student who are doing it for a bit of pocket money, they might have less local family support. this obviously matters for how much leverage and how great an experience they have when dealing with the companies that they're dealing with and the customers that they're dealing with. So do we see an imbalance of power when it comes to maybe workers not knowing what their rights are?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think worker worker rights have been a perennial problem for, for delivery drivers, especially debates around how delivery drivers are sort of legally categorized, if they're employees or non-employees. And there recently has been a sort of state, state-led initiative to sort of crack down on tech companies and require them to provide better protections for their workers. So a couple months ago, the state actually announced that it's planning to Men laws to allow ride-hailing drivers and food delivery workers to form unions, which has sort of been the latest step in this regulatory tightening that's been going on throughout 2021. And so, on face, I think it's a this is a positive move. It could help, especially these you know less educated migrant workers, access benefits and uh, protections that they you know that they deserve. But it's important to note that despite all the talk of unionization, uh, there's only one legal trade union in China, the ACFTU, which is overseen by the state. It's not worker organized. It doesn't do collective bargaining. So these are, <laughs> these are not independent unions. Um, what workers get through unionization is really about this: what the state wants to give them, if their goals align with the state's at any sort of given time in terms of pressuring these companies. And, you know, I think this is especially thrown into clear relief when we see how the state treats workers that try to organize outside of this
1: apparatus. Well, what happens?
0: So gig economy workers, and I think probably all workers in China, are operating in a very constrained political space where advocating for your rights and organizing can be really dangerous. Anything that resembles collective action can be considered a serious offense. And so collective action and unionization as a gig driver in particular is, is difficult. It's not like being in a factory where you work together and you know where your boss is, you know, it's atomized and it's impersonal by nature. So one recent case that's attracted a lot of international attention um, has been the imprisonment of Mengzhu, who was a regular delivery driver for Ulama. Um, and he's you know, a young guy, he's a migrant from Guizhou who came to Beijing to, to work and try to make a life. And a few years ago, he started an informal delivery riders alliance um, that began with posting videos of what it's like to be a delivery driver on Bilibili and Douyin and offering free advice to other riders that encounter workplace problems, uh, like how to deal with the disputes with restaurants or what to Mm -hmm. do with insurance if your motorcycle gets damaged. And this alliance grew. He ended up having 16 WeChat groups that reached about 15,000 delivery riders. And this sort of informal solidarity group evolved into a sort of union um, that was based in Beijing that but had links in other cities. Um, and they were connecting offline too, which I think was a big red flag. So Mengju was organizing monthly dinners that drew hundreds of people. Um, and so back in February, 2021, Ultimately, he was detained in Beijing, imprisoned, charged with picking quarrels, which is this vague blanket term for anything that the state perceives may be threatened social stability. So there's definitely a tension between how the state talks about workers' rights, and especially some of these pro-worker moves that they've been making recently, and how they treat workers that are actually trying to, to do something about the issues that they're
1: facing. That's so fascinating. I mean, when it comes to Mondu, then, do you think that obviously the organisation, the act of organisation, is already, you know, he's going to be putting him on some kind of radar because he's, as you say, he's got 15,000 people on WeChat. That's, that's a pretty big network. But did he do anything in particular that really triggered that arrest and then and the resulting imprisonment? Did he say that the government should be doing more? Did he essentially turn his scrutiny, turn people's scrutiny towards the government? Is that why it became political? I
0: think that he definitely sort of was a was an outspoken advocate for workers rights. So I mean, even if he wasn't going after going after the state directly, he would, you know, really call out these tech companies for their sort of improper labor practices. And I I think more than anything, though, it had to do with the range of his networks and his ability to mobilize. Um, And that's always something that immediately sends up red flags to the to the state. Um, The fact that he, you Know had these networks that spanned multiple cities uh, that he could send out a WeChat message and then suddenly get you know hundreds of people together in real life. I mean that that's perceived as a as a real threat, and I think it's also yeah. important to note that you know delivery drivers protest all the time and they don't necessarily face repercussions from the state. I mean protests are are not uncommon, and I think on like an individual basis, if a driver is protesting. Because, you know, he didn't get his wages or, you know, thinks that he's been treated unfairly by his company. Often the state will, will even, you know, back him up and, and force the company to pay those wages. So it's, it's really not so much about the, you know, the, the, the protest itself. It's about the, the sort of collective nature of sort of what was going on with, with Mongju.
1: And I want to talk a little bit about these working conditions as well, Viola. What does an average day look like? Because there's a stereotype of the Chinese being very hardworking, not helped by a real phenomena like 996, you know, where people mm-hmm. work from nine to nine, six days a week. So I can imagine that the gig economy can be easily worked. Is that a fair thought?
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of what a normal day w- looks like, the, the short answer is long and perilous. The Chinese for gig economy is lingong Jingti, um, which means the zero work economy, um, which I think is a, a bit misleading. Um, a legal aid organization in Beijing um, just released a report that, that found that more than 95% of takeout delivery workers work more than eight hours a day and are delivering over 30 hours orders a day. So it's really tough work. And as part of this recent ongoing government effort to pressure companies into compensating their drivers better, there's a sort of funny story where this mid-level official in the Beijing Human Resources and Social Security Bureau, his name's Wang Li, and no one had ever heard of him before. He went undercover as a delivery driver and filmed his misadventures and put them online and it went viral. And the videos were this sort of just, you know chronicle of him being stuck in traffic, missing deadlines for deliveries, getting fined by the platform's algorithms. I think he the goal was to make it through a 12-hour shift. Um, he didn't come even <laughs> close. Um, I think he delivered five orders and earned like 40 yuan, so like four and a half pounds. Um, so the pay is, is not great. That's a big problem. Uh, a lot of these drivers were lured in five or six years ago when these services started getting really popular with with promises of high wages, um, a flexible lifestyle, making their own hours. And at that time, the average wage for full-time couriers was around 10,000 yuan, um, so like 1,200 pounds a month, which is a lot. That was actually more than twice the average salary um, at that time. But the wages have gone down pretty precipitously ever since, as more drivers have, have flooded the market and, and demand has gone up. Um, But so these full-time delivery people are now earning around 5,000 yuan, um, so about half that, which is on par with the average wage. But keep in mind that these wages are usually per delivery, and there are tons of things that these drivers can be penalized for. The algorithms that they answer to are not sensitive to weather. They're subject to poor ratings from unreasonable customers that there's no recourse or accommodation for and they are forced to run red lights and you know take or take sort of hazardous routes in order to to make their their delivery time and that creates a lot of safety issues um and we've seen you know many many driver deaths injuries pedestrians that have been involved so it's it's really dangerous. And all of this is exacerbated, of course, by the fact that the majority of these drivers don't have formal labor contracts with their companies. And so, and without that relationship, you know, they don't get standard benefits and there's sometimes only protected by the commercial insurances that don't don't cover much at all um, and have super low payouts. And in recent years, there's been this sort of string of high-profile incidents that have focused the public's attention on the working conditions of these drivers. A delivery man for Ulema collapsed and died on the job, and Ulema initially offered his family 2,000 yuan, which is about 230 pounds, so an insultingly small amount because he didn't have a formal labor relationship with the company. Mm. And this sparked a huge public backlash and they eventually ended up giving his family 600,000 yen. In another incident, a delivery driver set himself on fire to protest unpaid wages. And... Sort of at the end of 2020, um, and this this sort of goes along with the the sort of COVID moment, there was this featured article in Renwu, which is a pretty mainstream magazine. Um, And if you're interested in in what the day-to-day of these drivers look like, I I really suggest reading it. There's a great English translation online that captures a, a sort of day in the life and drives home that this increasing dependence on these delivery companies without social safety nets for the workers are resulting in even lower pay and even worse conditions for these workers.
1: Mm, and we can definitely put a link to that article in the podcast description as well for anyone yeah, who wants um, to have further Chuang, further
0: reading. Chuang.cn. It's like a labor collective. Did like a summary and translation of it. That's really
1: good. Brilliant, brilliant. And I thought that Beijing official was just so fascinating, you know. <laughs> I on on a bit of a side note, you know, I think it was fantastic that he did do that and just really use his position of power in order to show that because it's such a different life and also a very different thing for an official to be doing inside China. What did you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think, I don't remember exactly when he did this, but it was after the sort of, you know, central push to improve these worker conditions uh, had taken off. So it's not like he was, you know, going against uh, sort of higher level directives to shine a light on the plight of these, you know, poor workers, like it, it, I think it's, you know, a good thing to do, you know, definitely brings more awareness to the issue. But I think in some ways, it was very, very sanctioned as well.
1: And you've also written about this exoskeleton that Elema has created for delivery drivers. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, so I'm actually, I'm not sure if it was just piloted or if it's actually been
0: put into, you know, full circulation yet. But Elema at least piloted this superhuman metal outfit that delivery drivers could sort of slip into that looked sort of not unlike a, a transformer and they could, you know, instead of carrying one food sort of box on their back, they could carry five food boxes. Um, And it was sort of advertised as this fusion between, you know, labor and tech, not unlike these platforms themselves that would uh, sort of increase, you know, service delivery to, to the people a lot of apartment buildings, you know, still don't have elevators and delivery drivers would, you know, have to climb, you know, five or six flights of, of concrete steps to get to their, their destination. And so this was sort of advertised as a way to help them uh, make tough deliveries and of course show off the like technological prowess of, of these companies. And the, the public reaction was very mixed. Um, I think some people thought it was, you know, this cool advancement, uh, likened him to a popular video game character. And other people really were like, wow, this is incredibly dehumanizing and and sort of saw it as as really like a, a sign of just how dehumanizing these jobs are.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean I think the word dystopian is used irritatingly frequently about yes. China. But looking at that picture, I was like, this is dystopian. This, he looks like a he looks like a cyborg <laughs> and it's just so that he can have over a kilogram of food on his back. But then again, you know Maybe that's me saying that from the perspective of a kind of relatively liberal millennial. And Viola, I want to take you back to a bit before when you were talking about how the government supports unionisation when it satisfies their purposes, basically. And obviously, we know a lot about the tech crackdown and a lot of these gig economy companies overlap with that because they're based on pretty data-driven apps, and very advanced algorithms. So is the government using or seeing greater worker rights as a way of controlling these companies as well. So, you know, in the process, you're giving workers this employee status, but you're also able to control these companies more.
0: Absolutely. I think that this uh, crackdown on tech and sort of simultaneous promotion of labor rights fits in very nicely with with Xi Jinping's sort of campaign for a common prosperity and, and push to reduce income inequality. For a little bit of context, uh, basically since the beginning of 2021, um, Xi Jinping and other big central regulators have been taking pretty extreme measures to rein in tech firms. So some smaller companies have been forced to shut down, some entire sectors like the online education sector and live streaming markets have just been absolutely decimated. And the huge companies that we've been talking about that have been growing at tremendous rates under this very laissez-faire approach um, have really been tripped up. So last summer, for instance, Didi was actually forced to stop signing up new users and their app was uh, yanked from the app store while regulators were running a cybersecurity investigation. I think they lost something like $6 billion last year. Alibaba, Meituan, and some of these other tech giants have just been clobbered by antitrust probes and data privacy investigations um, and have had to pay massive fines. And of course, this all has repercussions for the workers at these companies. Our focus is on the gig economy, drivers, but really up and down the whole ladder from executives to the millions of young, educated programmers that you know work really hard in school to land a job at one of these exciting fast growing tech companies are in a really precarious situation. And so for the delivery drivers we've been talking about, it's sort of a mixed bag. Um, So there definitely has been some positive movement as, Regulators have been upping the pressure on these companies to provide better pay and more benefits. Several times last year, Didi, Meituan, and uh, other online delivery companies were were summoned in by central regulators to discuss the working conditions of the drivers, and they were given explicit guidance to treat them better. To tweak the algorithms that they use for managing workers to ease their workloads, to reduce punishments for late deliveries. And we've seen some movement already. So Meituan immediately made changes to their delivery route algorithms. So drivers have a window to make their deliveries instead of trying to beat a specific time. And they say that they're working to be more accommodating when abnormal circumstances arise. Uh, So whether delays picking up food because the restaurant is running late, um, which is actually a big problem, That sort of thing. So, and like I said, like they've even encouraged them to unionize. Though you know that looks a little different in China um, than how we might think about it. Um, But so I so I think these are all steps in the right direction. um, But it's still too early to tell what the sort of long term impact will be.
1: Viola, I also wanted to ask you know how many of the problems that we're talking about is a problem of the gig economy in general, because we see a lot of the same debates happening in the West, certainly in the UK. Uber, for example, has just lost the ruling to say that in London its drivers are going to be considered employees now because of the similar kind of worker condition problems. On the other hand, some workers would say this is a great low-skill, flexible way of helping me make average earnings, as you say, especially if I don't have much of an education and I don't have many other options. So I guess the debate is quite similar, but obviously China brings with it its own dimensions in the union way that we've talked about, in the tech crackdown that we've talked about. But it's easy to think that, oh, my God, this is so awful happening in China. But actually, to some extent, it's just an awful happening in the gig economy. And on the other hand, it's good for consumers, but for the gig economy, workers are always going to be having similar kind of problems.
0: Right, I mean, I think that the Chinese gig economy actually has a ton in common with its American and British um, and sort of worldwide counterparts. I think certainly all the issues that you mentioned, uh, just sort of getting down to numbers as well, um, in terms of size, uh, gig economy workers make up a comparable part of the population um, in China as they do in the US and UK. So again, it depends on definitions, but broadly in China, about 14% of the population has engaged in some sort of gig or platform-based work compared to around 16% in the US, and 7%, so a slightly smaller proportion in, in the UK. And in all these places and around the world, like you were alluding to, um, there's this complicated relationship between the state, the tech companies that own these platforms and the workers that are trying to make a living in finding some sort of sustainable balance between what works and what doesn't work in terms of regulation, growth, workers' rights. Um, So I think that there are actually a ton of similarities, uh, especially in the big picture.
1: Yeah. Can I offer one other tension as well, which is the tension between consumer and worker, which is that me and you, presumably, we are more likely to be consumers, clients of the gig economy, and maybe we might try our hands at gig economy work, but it's never going to be our main source of income. Mm -hmm. And with greater worker rights, with increased wages or less efficient algorithms, also comes a more expensive service for the consumer. And again, this is a problem that happens in the gig economy world over and maybe a better question for economists rather than (laughs) a China expert like yourself. But we do see that tension, don't we? And consumers might be facing more expensive services in the future if it does mean that workers, on the other hand, get greater rights.
0: Right. I mean, going back to the Ulama case that we were discussing earlier about the worker who, you know, died on the job. One of Olama's responses to the public outcry was to, you know, give his family increased compensation. But the other thing they did is that they they offered uh, to sort of introduce a service where consumers could choose if they were willing to wait five to ten minutes more for their service, and thereby sort of reduce or ease the burden on these on these gig workers. So I think that is good in some ways, but also is sort of. Moving the onus to to the consumers to make that decision and decide if that's that's what you know they want to do or not, um, when it could certainly be argued that that's the that's the responsibility of the company. But yeah, I mean, I think that there there definitely is a, a tension between sort of the the blue collar workers and the more young professionals that are that are requiring their their services. I think in, in some ways there's a great appreciation among this sort of young urban working class where they're sort of affectionately refer to delivery people as I might shall like takeout delivery brothers or even uh Fumu, like food and clothes parents like because they're completely dependent on these delivery people to for sort of food and clothing because they're they're helpless otherwise. So I think that they're there there definitely is an interesting dynamic between uh, the sort of blue-collar and and white-collar workers playing out in these cities. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I'd I'd personally quite like to have that option, just to say, I don't mind if you're a bit later, if that means that you have less pressure. But then again, it is one of my New Year's resolutions to not use delivery, (laughs) so (laughs) maybe betraying my own political opinions here. Viola Rothschild, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Yeah, thank you, Cindy. Now, that was where Viola and I left it when we spoke last, uh, recording before the Omicron nightmare that has now taken hold in China. But uh, as I record, millions of people are locked down in Shanghai, unable to leave even their homes to do basic grocery shopping, which puts delivery drivers, the gig economy workers at even greater strain as they are literally critical to the survival of those locked down. So Viola and I got back in touch and thought we'd update on the latest situation. Viola Rothschild, welcome back to Chinese Whispers. Yeah,
0: of course. Thank you.
1: Now, much has been said about the people locked down in Shanghai, unable to get food because the lockdown is so strict for a large minority of people that they can't even leave their flats, which makes delivery drivers even more important than ever before. But we haven't heard much about the delivery driver's own perspective. Who are these people who are still keeping Shanghai stumbling, struggling along? Right.
0: I mean, I think that that's uh, sort of the the big problem is that you know we're looking at the city of, of 25 million people that that aren't able to leave their homes, um, and most people are living in in gated apartment compounds. So lockdown measures are actually able to be enforced. And the recent indefinite extension of the lockdown has totally overwhelmed these delivery services. And many of these delivery people are in lockdown too. So there's both a much higher demand and a much lower capacity for food and grocery deliveries. So And the city government is also doing uh, neighborhood-by-neighborhood drop-offs for for meat and vegetables and rice, uh, but it's hard to know when they'll come and what you'll get. So people are waking up at, you know, 5, 6 a.m. to try different delivery service platforms uh, to see if they can get lucky and, and get a grocery order accepted. Um, but mostly the platforms are just down or orders are left pending, uh, sort of indefinitely waiting for a driver to accept them. Um, and I think that the drivers that are still on the streets are, are mostly... People that have that these like big e-commerce companies have brought in from other uh, places uh, to work and are, are in some cases like putting up at hotels um, under uh, sort of like essential worker provisions uh, that are able to that are able to, to keep going out on the streets. But I think that the, that the number of drivers on the streets is just much, much fewer uh, than there were in, in regular times.
1: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because when this announcement in early April came that Erleman and their you know, other competitors that we spoke, spoke about before were bringing in reinforcements essentially from other places mm-hmm. outside of Shanghai, what does that mean for their gig economy status though? Because if, if you're saying that you can bring people in, they're surely employees, they're workers rather than gig economy workers.
0: You would think, to be honest, I'm not sure exactly what their uh, sort of technical legal status is. Um, but my my guess is that you know they're in this same sort of gray area of of informal employment um, where. They're they're still not on on formal or uh, sort of full time employment contracts, especially if they're just being brought in in these sort of in this like emergency uh, capacity. Um, so I think that we're we're seeing a lot of the the same issues, um, if not worse, uh, in terms of what their sort of overall uh, burden looks like.
1: Yeah, and I think social media has been so interesting. All of this hasn't it? Because you know these videos online of people. I don't know if they're joking or not, You know, using one of those massagers that vibrate on their thumbs so that they can press buttons faster when they're doing <laughs> online shopping on their apps in the morning. And I can't tell if they're joking or if, if that is the extent to which Shanghaiers have been reduced to fighting for that online shopping. And there was another video that showed, it was one of these quite detailed one of these deliverers, who was showing this mountain of receipts. And this was before Shanghai had even locked down at a fruit shop, uh, saying, you know, this is why... I can't get your orders to you in time. I'm so sorry, you know, kind of being Mm -hmm. a bit sarcastic about it. So they must be under incredible strain right now because we've heard stories about deliveries coming at like 1 or 2 a.m. So are are these people essentially working around the clock?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are definitely uh, challenges at every step of the supply chain, um, but this increased demand and again, just the physical burden of carrying more and bigger orders and learning how to navigate and adapt to these new systems that have just been put in place for lockdown at the last mile have really fallen to um, to these delivery drivers. So again, I mean, similar to drivers in, in the US and the UK, uh, as we talked about um, last time we spoke, these are chronically overworked, underpaid, Um, and and don't have the same sort of employment benefits as as formal or full-time company employees. And the lockdown is definitely um, just exacerbating these issues. And, you know, like you said, social media has played a big role. Um, There's been a ton of, you know, heartwarming stories that have come out in the Chinese media detailing the the heroics of these delivery drivers. You know, how the exhaustion of making over 100 deliveries during a 15-hour day is outweighed by the feeling of satisfaction of putting food into an anxious customer hands. Drivers that are collaborating with volunteers to make sure that elderly people that live on the high floors of apartment buildings are able to get their food. And even delivery drivers that are paying thousands of yuan uh, out of pocket to buy supplies for people that wouldn't be able to afford or access them otherwise. Uh, and, and of course, these guys are heroes. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the reality is, is that they shouldn't have to do this. And this is highlighting uh, inefficiencies in the system um, and the fact that you know something just isn't working.
1: Well, I wonder if that reflects our Western bias here, Viola, by which I mean, when that story came out of this delivery driver spending uh, seven, 70,000 yuan of his own money, which is just over 7,000 pounds, on supplying neighbourhoods, um, especially the, with the elderly, it was trending on Weibo, and a lot of the comments obviously take that with a pinch of salt. A lot of the comments were saying, wow, this, great, this guy's great, blah blah, 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 blah. I wonder if the Chinese have just a different mentality about what they expect the state to be doing that they rely more on interpersonal relationships, on these community heroes, rather than thinking this is what the state should be offering me, even though it is a communist uh, country. So I don't know what you think about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I think that there's a little bit of both. I mean, one thing that's uh, been huge during this time in terms of community connections has just been as these delivery platforms have faltered, Residents have been getting together on their own and organizing uh, in person and in WeChat groups to put in bulk orders directly to vendors um, and sort of being able to bypass the, the middleman here. And that's, I think, again, uh, due to some of the uncertainty about if or when these government deliveries are, are going to be able to, to arrive. But on the other hand, I think that there is a lot of latent or maybe, you know, not so latent fl- frustration over, you know, we have these insane uh, requirements to stay in our, our buildings. The least we can do then is, is you know, get these supplies on time and have support from the state. And we're definitely seeing, you know, a lot of th- huge outpouring of like grievances um, online directed towards the city government um, and even some scattered, uh, scattered protests in person as well. And I think really the city government has uh, realized that this is an untenable situation. Um, they cannot mobilize to be the sole providers of food to you know 25 million people that are stuck at home and getting increasingly restless. Like That is not a responsibility that they want. Just the other day, the city government announced that it's letting delivery people out of lockdown uh, if there have been no positive cases in their neighborhoods for, for two weeks. And they're allowing big e-commerce delivery companies to, to ramp up their services for urgent deliveries and, and next day community bulk deliveries so I think there is uh, a sort of given give and take here definitely.
1: Yeah uh, Viola last time we spoke we talked about how the pandemic was an opportunity to recognize these people both in the public mindset but also in the legal system as people who are essentially doing more than just Lingon zero work right mm-hmm. because uh, you know they've become so important I mean the Shanghai lockdown feels like a moment in that as well do you think that's right? yeah i mean we can we can
0: certainly hope i mean we had this a similar sort of sentiment come up during the during the first wave of covid in in 2020 where delivery drivers were being hailed hailed as heroes and it was sort of this catalyst for changing some legislation and that sort of dealt with their 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 status as workers and i think this most recent lockdown definitely calls to attention both the dependence that the shanghai government has on delivery drivers you know to keep residents fed and in line and this uh, you know, massive city functioning, um, but also definitely uh, highlights the incredibly marginal legal and social status that these essential workers still have. So, definitely moving forward, I think we can expect to see more more attention on this issue, and hopefully, uh, this can be you know act as another another step towards getting these these workers uh, the protections that they you know need and deserve.
1: Viola Rothschild, thank you again for joining Chinese Whispers. Of course, thanks Cindy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers, wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there.